Mary took a pound of costly perfume, anointed Jesus' feet, and then wiped them with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, the one about to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and the money all given to the poor? Would you please pray with me? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. How are you? Good. Thanks for answering. <laughs> you know, how are you? It's this innocuous question. It's one that we drop all the time. It's so much so that I think we ask the question without really ever wanting someone to answer it. You know those times when you say, hey, how are you? And someone says, oh, I'm having a really rough time right now. You think, I don't care. Oh, I'm sorry. You're not like me. You're good people, you know. But it's this question we say all the time. We, we ask the question and we get asked the question when we're in line at the grocery store. When we're waiting at the doctor's office, we even ask the question when we're passing the piece on Sunday morning. And how do we usually answer the question? I'm good. I'm fine. Ah, but the chief answer of all, I'm really busy. I'm really busy. It's almost as if that answer has become a reflex for us to respond with our busyness. And it's not untrue. I mean, take my life as an example. Take one day from this last week. I woke up early to get breakfast ready, to get the coffee going. I rushed out the door with my kid to get him to preschool on time. I drove straight to the church to go over financial documents, have a meeting, call some people, find out if I need to do some visits, do some emails, do some sermon prep. Then I had to leave home to get my kid to soccer practice on time, which went late, so I didn't have time to go home and make him dinner. So we had to stop to get dinner on our way home, which meant he was late for his bedtime, which meant the next day he was even crazier because he didn't sleep enough. So if you asked me how I was doing this week, I'm sure I would have said something about how busy I am. Uh, and then I picked up a book this week called Seculosity by a guy named David Zoll. And in it, he writes about how our busyness has become a new religion. To be busy is to be valuable, to be desired, to be justified. It signals importance and therefore enoughness. Busy is not how we are, but who we are. Or at least it's who we'd like to be. When we feel busy, we feel like we're enough. When we feel busy, we make connections between what we do with who we are, which of course is a really big problem. Many of us cannot imagine who we are outside of what we do. You meet someone for the first time and say, oh, tell me about yourself. Almost always the first thing we say is what we do for a living. We don't say, oh, I'm a Christian. Or I'm a Woodbridgean. Or I'm a Methodist. Or we say, I'm a pastor. I'm in finance. I'm a teacher. I'm a lawyer. I'm a doctor. We say the thing we do as if that's our chief identity. And because we do that, we build these ladders out of whatever we have around. And we construct scoreboards of our own design, making sure that we're doing enough, measuring what we do against everybody else's enough. And we never feel like we have enough or that we've done enough. We chase after this elusive enough when in our heart of hearts, we know that we will never have enough. The perfect meal at the perfect restaurant leaves us hungry just a few hours later. The perfect spouses, they age with time. They don't look like they did the day we married them. And they know how to cut through our armor better than anybody else. 
Our perfect children grow up to rebel against our perfect wishes for them. The perfect church gets a pastor or a program or a piety that rubs us the wrong way and goes on and on and on. We just can't shake the feeling that there's always more for us to do. There's always more for us to do. This story that Bob read for us is the prelude to Jesus' passion. It takes place on the eve of Palm Sunday. In the morning, he's going to get on that donkey and he's going to ride into Jerusalem. But that night, he arrives in Bethany. He goes to the home of Lazarus. Lazarus, Mary, and Martha, they throw him a little dinner party. The disciples gather around the table. They kick up their feet. The Pinot Noir is opened. The food is brought out. And then Mary walks over with a pound of Chanel number no. 5, and she pours it all over his feet. Then she takes her hair down from the bun, and she gets on the floor, and she takes her hair, and she washes in between his toes with her feet. And then Judas jumps up from his seat. He screams for everyone to hear, Woman, what's wrong with you? Why didn't you sell that perfume for a year's worth of salary and give away the proceeds to the poor? Jesus ever calmly replies, Judas, leave her alone. She bought it so that she could use it for my burial. There will always be poor people, but I won't be here forever. What a story. This is crazy stuff. The details are incredible, but perhaps most interesting of all is how some of the details don't have any explanation at all. I mean, the home of Lazarus is casually mentioned, but anyone who's read their Bible knows that this guy was dead a week ago. Jesus brought him back from the dead, and how does he respond to what Jesus did? I'm going to throw him a dinner party. I don't know about you, but if somebody brought me back from the dead, I think I'd be willing to do a little bit more than have him over for some cheese and wine. And Martha served the food. Martha, if any of us have read our Bibles before, is the one who was accosted by Jesus for always being the busybody. But it seems like she didn't listen to Jesus because she's still in the kitchen making food for everybody. And then we hear about Mary taking a pound of perfume. A pound and begins pouring on Jesus' feet. Today, if you were to buy a bottle of perfume or cologne, it almost always comes in a one-ounce bottle, sometimes a half an ounce, and it lasts forever. They've looked into the numbers, 300 denarii. That's about $30,000 worth of perfume. I mean, think about taking, some, taking 30K and pouring it out on somebody's feet, and then taking your hair down and rubbing it in someone's feet with your hair. In Matthew and Mark's version of the story, the woman anoints Jesus' head, pours the oil, pours the perfume on Jesus' head. It's a prophetic witness to the, the kingly, the messianic qualities of Jesus, saying, you are the king, even though you were in the kingdom of Caesar. But here in John's version, Mary doesn't pour it on his head. She pours it on his feet. It's another kind of prophetic act. She, through this scene, points to his imminent death. She knows that by the end of the week, those feet are going to be nailed to a cross. I mean, Mary, unlike the inner circle of disciples, unlike the rest of the crowds who've been following, she sees Jesus for who he is. She comprehends. She accepts what others cannot. Jesus will die. Ah, but we can't forget Judas. Judas goes off the rails. You know, the guy who's about to hand Jesus over. Why are you wasting that perfume when we could have sold it to help the poor? We could have used that $30,000 to help some people in need. How in the world did Mary get all that perfume in the first place? Where did all that money come from? How long has she been holding on to it? 
I mean, there's all kinds of questions that come out of this text. And the Bible, as always, resists our temptation to question and just gives us a story. Judas, for good reason, gets a bad rap in the Bible. After all, he is the one who ultimately hands Jesus over to the authorities. But can we not just sympathize with him for a moment? Because he's not wrong. They could have sold that perfume and done a lot of good things for a lot of people. I mean, John makes sure that we know that Judas was really up to in the narrative by saying, oh, he didn't really want to help the poor. He kept the common purse and he liked to take a little off the top for himself. But even still, Mary seems to be wasting what she had. Certainly, it could have been used in a different way, perhaps even in a better way. Throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus provides blessed abundance. When he goes to Cana, goes to the wedding, he takes 18 gallons of water and he turns it into 18 gallons of new wine to keep the wedding party going. By the Sea of Galilee, Jesus produces enough food to feed 5,000 people with plenty of leftovers. After fishing all night with nothing to show for it, Jesus instructs Peter to put the nets in one more time and they bring back such a haul that it makes the boat start to sink. The abundance made possible in Christ is offered to those in need. Whether it's food or wine or companionship, Jesus provides again and again. But at this weird dinner party, everything's changed. It's a prelude to the end of the week. It's a prelude to what's going to happen. Mary anoints him ahead of time for the burial he is going to receive. And again and again in the Gospels, people ask Jesus for something. Lord, give us a son. Heal my daughter. Feed my son. And Jesus obliges again and again. But here, a week away from his death, John tells us that Jesus turns his attention away from everyone else and instead to the cross. You know, much of religion today focuses on what is useful, on what is practical, what is cost effective. We spend most of our time thinking about and planning upon what we should do in order to achieve what we want to do. And this type of fanatical religious observance has really been on display in the last week, but ironically not, or not, has not been in the church. It has been on display in the wealthy parents who bought their children's spaces in elite colleges. Have you all heard about this story? This is, this is some good craziness right here. Okay? An agency for a steep price could pro- procure a diagnosis for one of your children that would enable her or him to take the SATs over a long weekend rather than in a four-hour room. And they would hire a proctor for your child's benefit to help either guide her or him to the right answers or simply fill out the test on their behalf. That's just tier number one. If you have more money to spend for another fee, the agency would hire someone to take online high school classes under the name of your child in order to boost up their grade point average. Oh, but if you've got more money to spend, they would pay a bribe to a coach in an elite university who would say that they needed that particular person to be on their team at school regardless of whether your high schooler had ever played the sport or not. You know, the news broke because a number of very wealthy and very famous people got arrested and a lot of articles were written about it. And the overwhelming response to what had happened was not shock. It was not awe. It was, eh, sounds about right. Sounds about right. I mean, who are we? To blame those ultra-wealthy parents for doing everything in their disposal to help their children achieve their dreams? Parents' dreams? I mean, who are we to blame Judas for him saying what he did about spending all that money on something else? You see, we 
Those parents, Judas, us, we suffer from this fixation that enough is never enough. We move to a new neighborhood only to start plotting and planning out our finances that will allow us to move to an even better neighborhood in the future. We enroll our children in after-school programs, and we are not content with their participation until it garners them a spot on the very best team, in the very best social group, or at the very best school. We work until we are able to retire, and then we spend most of our retirement wondering if we have saved enough money to retire. The frightening truth that Judas hints at with this question is that there will always be more work to do. The question isn't what work needs to be done, but whether we know what enough looks like. Now, this is not, as some churches have foolishly used to claim in the past, that this thing that Jesus says frees us from the responsibility to care for the last and the least and the lost. It's not that we don't have to help the poor, and it's not that we are freed from helping the poor. We get to help the poor. It's not that we are required to do this. It's not that we're freed from doing it. We get to do it. It is a joyful obedience. It is a wonderful thing that has been opened up for us. We're not told to do it. We're not required to do it. We're not freed from doing it. We are allowed to do it. Because of what happens to and what happens through Jesus. You know, the anointing of his feet, it is a recognition that at the end of the week, those feet are going to be nailed to the cross. In what is God's most triumphant condescension, Jesus does for us what we could not do for ourselves. Jesus is sent into a world, a world that did not request him, and yet he acts entirely for the world's benefit. Were it up to us alone, even with our best intentions, the poor would only get poorer and the rich would only get richer. The hungry would continue to starve and the filled would only bloat. Enough would never feel like enough. Enough would never feel like enough. But Jesus lays down his life for God's people, not because we asked him to, but because he chooses to. We can always, of course, initiate new programs to feed the hungry in our community. We should do stuff like that. We can give away clothing to those who are in need. We can start offering microloans to bursting entrepreneurs. We can help teach individuals and families how to go on a diet or how to budget their money. There is so much we could do. The list goes on and on and on, and it will never be enough. It will never be enough. There will always be more work to do. But the one thing that we could never do has already been done for us. The work, the life of Christ, cross, death, and resurrection provides the enoughness that we really need. The cross is a sign for us that we are not worthy, but Christ makes us worthy. The cross is a sign for us that though we have sinned, we are offered pardon. The cross is a sign to us that though we feel empty, Christ Christ proclaims that we are enough. That you are enough. You are enough. And so I offer this to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. One God now and forever. Amen. About a year and a half ago, I was asked to preside over the wedding uh, ceremony for one of my oldest friends in the world. She and I grew up together. Her father and my father went to high school together, and we were basically raised as siblings. Uh, and so she got married about a year and a half ago. 
and uh, very quickly she and her husband got pregnant and they had a baby and they brought the baby down yesterday and they asked if I would baptize their baby girl. They wanted the, the one who brought them into their marriage to also be the one that baptized the child and they had 80 of their friends and family come to this worship service on a Saturday afternoon. So we gathered together and uh, we prayed together. I, I read scripture, I preached a sermon and then uh, I took her in my arms and I took the water and I baptized her in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. And as I always do, I took her into the midst of this worshiping congregation and I started whispering into her ear. Because for me, it's always a moment that I want to share something with the newly baptized and no one else has to hear it. It's just a moment for she and I to share together. And you know what I whispered into her ear? You are enough. You are enough. You are enough. Because we live in a world that tells us again and again that we're not enough. We are told again and again, you can always be doing more, you can always be earning more, you can always be loving more, you can always be doing this and this and this, and we always feel like we're not enough. And so I whispered into her little tiny ear the one thing I hope she knows and remembers for the rest of her life. You are enough. If I could pick each of you up and carry you in my arms around this church right now, I would whisper in your ear, you are enough. That is the message of the cross. 